I'd seen a lot of other people having success with the proof of concept, and I have to say, it was a very useful tool. I think you'll find that once you get on set, it's not so different from what you've been doing with your short films. It's just on a, a larger scale. Bonus episode. Bonus episode. I feel like there should be some sort of alarm. <laughs> bonus episode, and we're glad about it. Welcome. This is the Fright Club podcast, and she is Hope Mad. He's George Wolf. And we are from madwolf.com. And if you've uh, heard any of these podcasts over the years, or a lot of them, you've heard us talk many times about the Nightmares Film Festival that we love so much in Columbus, Ohio. A fantastic festival of indie horror, shorts, features, comedy, really scary stuff, you name it. And uh, we've been wanting for a while to record a live podcast during the festival, and we were never quite able to work it out. Well, we were able to work it out this year. We get the chance to talk to Nightmares alum, director Natalie James, who uh, a couple of years back, she won Best Short, Best Overall Short with her really wonderful film, Creswick. And then you may realize she went on this year to direct one of the best horror films of 2020, Relic. Everything all right, Grant? I thought this was where it got in. Who? Whoever it was coming into the house. Mum, what is it? It's here. Under the bed. There's nothing under the bed, Mum. Will you check for me? I'm here to help you, Mum. I can see you. <laughs> So we get the opportunity to talk with her and to field some questions from some of the other uh, attendees at the festival. Yeah, you'll hear us get introduced. Really nice introduction by Jason Tostevin, who is the co-founder and lead programmer for Nightmares Film Festival. And then we just take it away with a uh, nice conversation with Natalie James. So enjoy. I'm going to start by saying I am super thrilled about this session. I'm really excited that it's our first Working Maker Workshop for a couple of reasons. I'm a huge Natalie James fan from her short Creswick, and she knows that, I've told her. So I'm just thrilled to have her back uh, in the Nightmares family. But before we get to Natalie, I want to mention, if you haven't met Hope and George before, Hope and George are a team called Mad Wolf of film critics who also run probably the smartest horror podcast happening right now. No offense to those of you who have your own podcasts. I'm sure they're very smart. But um, I'm a huge fan of Fright Club, which is their podcast. If you're not subscribed and watching and listening, because you can also watch when um, the pandemic hasn't shut us all down and they can get to Gateway Film Center, you absolutely should. But they're two of my favorite folks in horror. Um, super smart, super kind, really good at what they do. And I'm just thrilled that they agreed to um, to this sort of firesidey chat style conversation with Natalie. So with that, my warm fuzzies out of the way, I'm going to turn it over to you guys, Hope and George, and um, to have your converse, conversation with Natalie. Although I should say, folks, thank you for staying on mute. Hope and George will let you know if it's appropriate to come off mute, if they're going to open it up for questions. Otherwise, chat in your question. There's this chat function. And I'm going to watch that. So that won't sneak by. I'll watch that for everybody. And so if you have a question, I'll make sure they get to it. Cool? Okay. With that, it's yours. 
Thank you so much. We, we really appreciate it. We are extremely excited to uh, be back at Nightmares and to be hosting the first of these workshops with a, with a filmmaker that we are big fans of as well. I remember uh, back in, in 2017, we were on the, the jury panel for mainly the, the thriller features, but Jason just kept, he would throw random shorts to us. And we're like, hey, check this out, check this out. And, and he sent us uh, Creswick and we were just, we were just knocked out as he was. Uh, as, and if you remember, the veterans remember that it won um, best overall short. Yeah. So, and now the filmmaker is back uh, with her feature from this year, Relic. Everybody, welcome Natalie Erica James to the workshop. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're so glad to have you here. I wanted to start in kind of a broad. I wanted to ask about your evolution as a filmmaker because aside from Crestwood, you've made another uh, three different other short films. Uh, before making the leap to the feature. And I'm curious about if, you know, you sort of learned with each film and to prepare yourself for a feature or what the, the evolution looked like there. I guess um, I had a pretty standard path into filmmaking in that the desire to be a filmmaker came as a teen. Um, and so I went straight into film school right out of high school. So I guess at film school, it's the opportunity to make a lot of shit short films and try out a lot of ideas and <laughs> make a lot of mistakes, of course. And uh, one of the great things about film school is that you kind of have a community around you who will help you. Uh, and of course you give back and help them on their shoots as well. But that really allows you to continue making films past film school. Um, and so that's one of the things that I did. I you know, worked a lot in advertising. That was kind of how I paid rent, anything from production assisting to directing. But I just made sure I was still making the really narrative films that were really important to me. So yeah, you know, you learn a lot over the years. Some of your shorts are more successful than others. And there's always that heartbreak of like not getting into the festival you really want to get into and the ups and downs that come with that. But I think, um, focusing on the stories that are really important to you and that there's like an urgency to those stories that you need to tell them. That's really important as well. So yeah, we'd definitely say I learned a lot over the, the shorts making process. Did starting off in short films, was that a conscious decision to start the, the path to a feature? And mm -hmm. you thought that maybe that would be a, way, a good way to get your feet wet, didn't feel you were ready right now for, for a feature film as you started with the shorts? Yeah, I think, um, you know, taking Relic as an example, we actually had the first draft of Relic when I made Creswick. So Creswick obviously functions as a proof of concept, but it was almost reverse engineered in that, you know, we tried to come up with a succinct story. Um, that's why the characters are different. You know, it's more of a father-daughter uh, story. But yeah, instead of trying to shoehorn a feature idea into a short, I think there's so many ways to do it. You could totally do the whiplash thing of having just a single scene that sums up, you know, your film. But for us, we wanted to, because it's so thematic, we wanted to kind of encapsulate the theme in a, yeah, just a much more shorter 10-minute kind of casing. And that seemed to work quite well, I think, because by the time we were going around to festivals with the short, we already had the feature so inevitably when you start to meet people and they like your short, you can kind of go, well, here's the feature version. And, you know, what do you think about this? And I, I'd seen a lot of success, um, like other people having success with the proof of concept. And I have to say it was a very useful tool in um, marketing or 
at least selling the film and the idea because you could go into a meeting having you know someone already seen your short and really understanding the tone and the atmosphere of everything that you wanted to convey so instead of having to like vocalize it you could just point to this really you know this thing that you'd already made so it's helpful you've also i mean you worked on a lot of other people's films over the years, including Upgrade, and you worked on that film and some other things. So I was curious, right. do you ever watch sort of other directors and think, I'm gonna steal that? Or do you ever watch other directors and think, <laughs> no, that's not how I would do that. They should be doing it this way. <laughs> yeah, so Upgrade was a part of a program that the Australian government runs, which they call it a director's attachment, which essentially means you just follow a director around for three months. So I was just literally, observing Lee Winnell for three months, driving him around. Um, and, you know, that is a really worthwhile, I think it was really worthwhile. It's not so much that you learn hard skills in terms of, I'm gonna steal that, I'm gonna steal that. It's more that you get a full sense of um, the expectations and you understand the scope of what a feature project is to a director and, and I guess the um, endurance that's required and to what extent. Uh, the pressures as well from studio at studio level or just producers, those kinds of things I felt were really helpful. And I think mentally prepared me for making that first feature because I had already seen it kind of secondhand. So looking back now on your journey to that first feature, do you think it proceeded at just the right pace or looking back, do you think there are things you know now that, that, that could have maybe sped it up a little bit if you'd done something differently? It's hard to say, I think. Uh, I think to a certain degree, you know, I have friends as well who've had really successful shorts and then have very consciously made the decision to make more shorts because they feel they want to explore more ideas and they want to hone their skill before, you know, making that first feature. And I think it really depends because there are so many ways to make that first film. And some people take the approach of just, going for the first opportunity and kind of going, look, it's a learning curve. I'm going to learn on the job and it might not be, it might not be your, like your passion project even. It's more just like taking the opportunity that you're presented with. And then other people kind of wait years and years for that first project. And it's the thing that they've been developing for 10 years. So I don't think there's like a proper way to do it. And there's pros and cons to both. You can certainly do it earlier. I think if you just take those opportunities rather than waiting and making sure you're prepared. But the truth is, I don't think you're ever gonna feel 100% prepared and you kind of just have to keep going. And what's really important probably is just making sure you surround yourself with good people. And you know, in my case, I met my uh, Australian producers have been on, on Relic since the conception of it. I met them when I was like 21 and they approached me out of um, my film school. And, you know, I mean, I want to share a story because I think it's important to say that, you know, they approached me and they were saying kind of like, oh, what are your feature ideas? We loved your short. <laughs> what, um, what have you got? And I had nothing, you know, coming out of film school. You're just like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just so glad to have made it through, you know, <laughs> um, and you're burnt out. But I basically like winged it and lied to them and said, oh, yeah, I've got this great idea. I'll send it to you. I wrote something in two weeks and they very respectfully passed on that project, which makes total sense. Like, <laughs> Um, but I kept in touch with them. And then four years later, that's when I started writing Relic and they jumped on board that project. So again, it's more about 
the relationships that you cultivate over time and having those people who can guide you um, in making that first feature because they had had a history of working with first time directors and you do, it's a world of difference um, having that kind of support. So yeah, I mean, all this to say, I don't think there's ever a point where you feel 100% ready because it feels so insurmountable at the start. But I think you'll find that once you get on set, it's not so different from what you've been doing with your short films. It's just on a, a larger scale um, and a longer scale. But, and also, I mean, I can, I'm going into other areas now, but you know, the great thing about a feature um, and hopefully having that kind of infrastructure around you in terms of producers and line managers, obviously depends on the size of it. But in a short film, you're like, I don't know about you guys, but I was always at least co-producing you know, you know, doing location scouting, doing some of the production design elements as well, just doing what you can, because it's your baby, right? You put everything into it, sometimes catering, like staying up till all hours of the evening. And then it's like a sprint because you're trying to make the most of the gear higher. So you're doing like crazy days and you're just trying to get it done. It's really that labor of love. Whereas there's a little bit of that with features, but it's much more respectable because you have to fit it within your hours and there's people to take care of stuff like catering for you. Like you just don't even have to think about that at all. So yeah, it sounds crazy, but it's kind of nice just to focus on the directing in a way that you can't do with a short film. You're just too across uh, a lot. Was yes. it tough for you to give up any of the, the control? Obviously not of catering, but are there areas <laughs> Were there areas where you're like, I don't know, maybe I still want to really do that? Uh, or were you comfortable just going, you know, let's, let's give you all of these tasks and I'm just going to focus on this one? I think that's a real key part of directing, right? Delegation. Like you have to be able to delegate. Otherwise, you kind of shoot yourself in the foot um, because you're not. I mean, I think there's a way to achieve a balance where the buck stops with you ultimately in terms of like the creative vision. and I feel like I learned early on with shorts that there can be a danger in trusting too much and kind of going, oh yeah, they'll take care of it and, you know, not double checking. But conversely, I think it's a missed opportunity to hold your cards too close because it really is about the collaborations with your heads of department that can push your ideas further. And there's some pretty amazing things that can arise out of that. So, you know, I think one of the... Um, the dangers that first time directors face sometimes is I don't feel like I experienced this as much, but my producers were telling me some of the directors they've worked with before um, have this feeling about needing all the answers or needing to have all the answers. And that can be quite dangerous uh, because if you get stuck, you have no one to help you, you know, and these things can be worked out with a group of people. That's why you've hired them, you know, they're your team. So if you kind of um, make it, create an island around yourself and think, oh no, I'm the director, I'm the dictator, I need to, I'm the creative genius who has everything worked out. It's like, you're gonna, you're gonna come up against some shit. So <laughs> you might as well have like your team around you and yeah, establish that kind of collaborative environment early. So once you started shooting Relic, how much did this, the finished product change from uh, the, the story that you went in with? Was there a lot of collaboration from start to finish? I think it's more about achieving, it's like different approaches to achieving what you want. So it's not so much that your story changes or your intention changes in any way. It's more about 
being open to other avenues. Um, and I would say it was pretty similar from this, our shooting script to the end result. There were some things that were cut in the edit, for example. I mean, the edit just feels like you're just fixing all your, the mistakes you made on the day sometimes. But there was only like one scene that we rewrote during the, the production, and that was a dialogue uh, kind of rewrite, nothing substantial to the plot. So yeah, nothing I can point to. Like more in, in the scripting process that the script changed drastically, um, even though the intention was still the same. So, I mean, I think a lot of, yeah, your job as the director is to keep the train on its tracks and just to know really clearly what the destination is. And um, yeah, taking on ideas for more logistical problem solving, but really having a clear idea of what the ripple effects are gonna be for the rest of the film. It felt like the theme of both films, the short and the feature, is something very personal to you, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, definitely. Um, my grandmother had Alzheimer's, so I was definitely drawing on a lot of um, that experience and used that as the inspiration for the story. I wanted to ask whether, I don't know if intimidated is the right word, but this cast was amazing and Emily Mortimer is <laughs> such a stunning performer. I feel like I would be intimidated to talk to Emily Mortimer, <laughs> let alone tell her what to do. Did you, did you have that at all or were you just like, you know, this is my gig, that's your gig, let's just do this? No, of course you have all sorts of anxieties about working with a very experienced cast as a first timer. I think, again, one of the the things that and, and in some ways I feel really lucky that they were really generous with me and just very open and always trusted me from the get-go I think the worst thing would be to feel like you have an actor who's like resisting you or doesn't quite trust you or you know that there's nothing that kills your confidence more than like <laughs> your leads not being on side um but yeah I mean part of it I think is just in in pre-production and the preparation for it, just really establishing that trust beforehand. So it's not like this completely, there's enough going on on set that you kind of want to have that closeness with your actors as much as you can prior to shooting. Um, and for us, that looked like a lot of discussion and being really open with each other about our, I suppose, life experiences. Um, Bella called it trauma bonding. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's kind of a way to um, almost create like a, a language of how you can talk about what the characters are going through on set. So by really sharing your lives with each other and finding the common ground and where you connect as people, I think that can be a really useful kind of um, starting point, you know, for your relationship with your actors. And I mean, certainly in terms of um, feeling uh, intimidated, I feel like to a certain degree, you start to put that side of things. Like if you step back, maybe things feel a bit surreal. You're like, oh, Emily Mortimer is like in my, <laughs> you know, I'm just having coffee with her. That's great. Um, but I think, yeah, I think you're, you can kind of split that part of your brain. Yeah, you quickly get used to it. One of the things that struck us when we were talking about Relic, you know, we've seen many other movies about dementia, about Alzheimer's. It seemed like this one was trying to present a different side and showing maybe the more unpleasant nature of how bad it can get compared with some of the other more recent movies on the subject that we've seen. Is that something that mm -hmm. was in your mind? Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess as a horror film, it lends itself to, you know, that really scary, harrowing side of the disease. 
and I guess my focus is more on the heightened um, grief and heartbreak kind of aspect of the experience as opposed to the the day-to-day kind of mundane and the you know sometimes the levity that can come from uh, people who've got Alzheimer's I suppose um, you know if I think about my own grandmother's experience she had Alzheimer's for about 10 years and we're really condensing this down into like a week max <laughs> so it's a very heightened I guess depiction of the experience and kind of taking it to this supernatural extreme but I would say that there are a lot of like uncanny you know surreal moments in uh being with a loved one who has Alzheimer's like I remember my grandmother being convinced that there was someone like a man sitting in her closet so like there are moments like that that actually you know are drawn from real life and you're just kind of pushing it to the the highest extreme but but I think for me in terms of like intention it was never to demonize you know people with the disease at all of course not it's more about the emotional connection um, and the importance of that in the face of these really scary things um, and yeah I think you know even the fact that we you see the the story from Edna's perspective at key points you really do build like a, a compassion for her and I guess that's that was kind of a driving factor as well well Jason we don't want to we don't want to hog this all night were there questions that we should uh, toss at her from the group yeah, why don't we have one right now, which is um, asking about uh, gaffing lighting, Natalie. The question is, mm-hmm. uh, Dave asked, first of all, he said um, it's relics beautifully shot, which it is. Um, wondering what the ratio was of scenes uh, lit only with available or practical. Yeah, we actually had a combination of things um, like set wise. So we had two locations and one studio build that was like the upstairs rooms. So of course all the upstairs rooms were, um, there are a lot of lights coming in through the windows. Um, most of them using practicals as well. Um, maybe natural light, maybe like 30% natural light and practicals. So. Overall, there was some, um, you know, I think it was a naturalistic approach, but we definitely had lights up. One of the other things that impressed me is it, in Relic, even though the, the metaphor is not, it, it doesn't hit you over the head. I mean, it's clear, but it's, it's not something that just weighs on you, that you found that balance between making clear what you're saying without condescending to the audience, I think. And uh, a lot of times that's a tough, line to, to, to toe in an effective manner so uh mm. i guess was that something in, in your writing or in your shooting did, did you ever get to a point where you think oh I'm, maybe i'm pushing a little too hard maybe i pull back a little bit yeah yeah definitely i i guess i'm a fan of ambiguity in some ways and it is really interesting hearing reactions to relics some people think it's too heavy-handed some people think it's like too confusing um so you know <laughs> i guess it's all relative anyway but yeah, I think there's something really lost when you have to parse out the the mechanics of like supernatural supernatural logic. Like I think there's something about having to describe the yeah, the logic of supernatural mold essentially that makes the whole thing quite naff and I'm more of a fan of um uh you know things making emotional sense in a way and if there's like a lyrical kind of logic to it then that's you know sometimes enough for me unless there's something like glaring but um yeah I would say in general um 
I, I found it interesting in post just going off of feedback from producers that usually the American producers were very like, things need to be more clear, like we need more you know, clarity. And then the Australian producers were like, no, put, pull it back, pull it back. Like, you know, this is too overt. So uh, I guess as the director, you only have your instincts as your compass. So um, hopefully it was the right choice. Right, <laughs> it's been a really, obviously, incredibly weird year for films, distribution and, and how people are seeing mm. them. Um, and two things that struck me with Relic, one is that uh, I think the first three really good genre films I saw this year, uh, Relic, Amulet, and Shirley, all were directed by women, which I thought mm -hmm. was outstanding. And then also I wondered whether the fact that people were really trying to find something online that was worth watching, whether you think that that benefited your film at all. Yeah, probably. I would, I would guess that we got more at least um, press attention because there was less coming out. And I remember IFC Midnight released it in the US and they said very early on, okay, we're going to make the most of this gap that the studio films being pushed back is going to create. And I remember feeling a little bit sad about that because I think you always have this like romanticization of, um, you know, a theatrical release and having everyone see it in the darkness of the cinema. But um, in the end, yeah, I, I think more people probably saw uh, the film because of that. And certainly in Australia, I mean, we were in lockdown during that period and that we were bought out by a streaming service here called Stan. And they had a very aggressive marketing campaign that kind of just took over Australia. And so 100%, I think way more people saw it over there than uh, they would have if it was in theaters. So... Yeah, there are, there are good things to come out of, um, you know, the constraints as well. Will there be more uh, short films in your future? Or are you going to keep with, with features or more proof of concepts? Or what are you thinking? I think I, I like the idea of creating more short form projects, uh, but maybe probably not a short film to the scale of something like Creswick again. Um, I would probably just focus on, you know, writing the features and getting those up. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always great to play around with new ideas, but um, it's also the, like the, you have to weigh the benefits um, as well. You know, maybe music videos or branded content, stuff like that. Actually, it's an interesting, um, what you bring up about writing your own content, because I was curious whether at this point you might want to just branch out and direct something from somebody else, you know, just sort of, hire on to do like a big studio film? Or would you just rather have the control of writing what you work on? Probably a bit of both. I, I definitely want to focus on my own work and, you know, be writing, directing and kind of creating my own stuff. Um, but at the moment, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely reading a lot that's, you know, other people's kind of writing. And I think uh, it's, it's tricky. Like it's really hard to balance the two things um, to a certain degree. Like, another person's script has to like appeal to you just as much as your own kind of work, I suppose. So I think I'm like sorting through that at the moment, but I'm definitely open to both. Jason, do we have any other uh, questions you've seen come in? We do. I think you guys might get to hear Milo talking upstairs a little bit. <laughs> so Tova asked, how early on, Natalie, did you come to the idea of this cluttered attic as the right visual metaphor? And then talk about like was that difficult in terms of production design very early in fact i think it was the first image that 
I'm so sorry. There's like a construction site across the road for me. Um, that's suddenly started up. Um, yeah, it was actually the first image that uh, probably came to me for relics. So my grandmother's, my grandmother's house had this upstairs um, section, like a couple of rooms that were full of hoarded uh, junk, but also like family, you know, mementos and furniture. Um, and her hoarding had gotten worse over the years as well. And I kind of made the leap that maybe part of it was driven by the notion of like trying to hold on to things when everything was kind of slipping away. And I liked the idea of a space kind of filled with that compulsion, but also um, being almost emblematic of the mind and memories and the idea of it growing inwards into the house. Very House of Leaves, which is, you know, one of my favorite books as well. And yeah, so I would say, yeah, one of the kind of seminal <laughs> images of the film. And achieving it was tricky because we were like 40% over budget on the set design. <laughs> so we had to kind of, yeah, take a red pen to the designs and uh, it was a much bigger space initially. Um, but in the end, yeah, my production designer made this, I guess you could call it a modular set. So sections that could be taken away and, you know, make it feel like a different kind of part of the set, even though in reality it was like two hallways. <laughs> so yeah, those were certainly some creative challenges that we came up against. And um, for me, it was really important that the space never felt like you were entering an alternative reality or like a universe, that it wasn't that Narnia moment of like, oh, where are we? It was more like a slow descent into um, this kind of uh, fractured space. And so we used a lot of the same architectural language as the rest of the house as a starting point. We have a few more chat questions. Hope and George, do you want to do you want to take those, or should sure. I should I read those? Okay. Um, Lon is wondering about uh, how you got your actors, Natalie. So did you, he's wondering did you have them in mind, or was it all through auditions? Did, you know, did the producers attach them? How did how did the talent come about? No, I didn't actually have specific actors in mind while writing it. So it was more about having creative conversations in the casting process and trying to figure out, you know, who's, what's the type, who's the ideal and what combinations of actors are going to work well, because of course they're, they have to be a family as well. And so, yeah, it wasn't an audition process at all. That was the one thing, quite a new thing for me um, with working with high profile actors. It's more just, settling on the person you think is best and kind of making that imaginative leap from their previous roles and um, I think meeting them as well was a massive thing just being able to meet them in person see what they're like and get their ideas about the script and also their personal experience with grief in particular and meeting all three of them it was like yeah just it felt right from that first meeting so yeah We've got one here from Jordan. He says he's an Aussie living and working in New York. And uh, he, cool. he wonders if you can uh, talk a little about working with Film Victoria and how you went about working with them. Yeah, so Film Victoria is our state funding body and they were the ones who funded that program I mentioned where um, I was able to shadow Lee Winnell and upgrade for three months. So Film Victoria were great. They also gave us some development money as well. So I think we did two rounds of development with them to write a few drafts of the script. And then they also put in money for the, the final like production investment as well. So yeah, they were great. I mean, in terms of, <laughs> I have to say the, 
Australian funding bodies are so chill uh, when it comes to giving feedback and approvals and stuff like that. I remember in one of our um, kind of fine cut screenings, we probably got like two notes from Film Victoria and then we got like six pages of notes from our US partners. <laughs> and the contrast was just like, oh my God. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they were great. And one from Meg. Uh, she recently won funds to make a proof of concept for a horror feature. Congratulations. Uh, she'd love to know what was the most important thing you learned from shooting the proof of concept that you used in making the feature? Um, this is a little outside of, I think, what you're asking specifically, but I wanted to share as well that I've since made another proof of concept for a new project. And I think it's really wise to have your feature script before you make the proof of concept, because in this other project, I made the short film first and then wrote the feature. And it's not that they're still linked, but I don't, I think I could have written a better short that encapsulates the feature and what it's about a bit better. So just some advice. Um, but I think, um, I think, yeah, I mean, you learn from every project you do. So with the short, I think um, it was playing around with the divide between prosthetics and visual effects. That was a really key thing for me. And just to get some experience in that, because it wasn't something I'd worked on before. So I think that was really useful experiments in tone and sound design as well and atmosphere, those, those kinds of things you can um, really explore. As an American watching Australian horror movies, I get the idea that if I go there, I'm not going to come home alive. <laughs> is, is, is that true? Is this like the, um, the, the animal, the animals are going <laughs> to kill you kind of vibe or, or just the isolation or, that is yeah. scary place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, certainly, yeah, historically there's a lot of, um, what is it, like murderers killing backpackers or whatever. Yeah. Um, no, it's, Australia's fine. No worries. <laughs> just stay in the cities and you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Sean says, you mentioned changes that happened in the script. So Sean and Roy both wanted to ask about changes that you may have needed to make for budget reasons. Yeah, good question. Um, nothing so interesting. Maybe sometimes like, can we set this at this location instead and kind of minimize our locations potentially? But it wasn't too bad. It was more, I, I don't think we had to make any overt um, it was like relatively contained anyway to start with. So again, it was more the scope of that set build that we really had to bring down. Those were the main um, budget limitations, but it didn't really affect the script too much. So what do you, uh, when you watch horror movies, what's most effective to you? What scares you? I guess it's always the anticipation um, of something, you know, and, and your mind conjuring something that isn't there um, that's always seems to be scarier than, you know, actually seeing the menace and the monster. Uh, I think that's always a thing. Uh, I'm really into like cosmic horror and the mystery of something and like something unexplainable. Um, I think that's quite chilling. Probably this, the supernatural of the paranormal is scarier to me than like, you know, a slasher film. Are you thinking about continuing to work in the genre or are you going to branch out? Yes, I am. Yeah, I'm writing a few things that are all in the horror genre. Um, one of them is like a folk horror. So subsets of the genre. But my tastes kind of are broader. I'd love to do some like sci-fi, 
even magical realism, if it's not, you know, like a social realist drama, I'm probably interested. I think, Jason, do we miss any, um, any of just, these questions? Just one, and it occurs to me, you know, people could probably ask their own questions and unmute. So, Rachel, if you're still on, why don't you, oh, hi, why don't you unmute and ask Natalie your question yourself? My, my question was, what was your biggest challenge in, uh, or obstacle going from mm -hmm. to a feature? Like what was maybe the most intimidating part for, for you to do that step, which is, I think it's a big step. Yeah, sure. I think one of the intimidating things was I'm a huge planner. And so with my short films, I really like to not necessarily storyboard, but at least shot list and plan and really have a sense of how it's all going to cut together um, and have a plan A, but also like a B and C as well. Uh, whereas I found with a feature that it is much harder to ha do that across the entire film. Like it wasn't that we were completely unplanned, but you know, we certainly storyboarded a lot of the action and stunt um, prosthetic sequences. But I found that you had to ride the chaos a little bit and that in some sometimes that was really stressful but also that it can be quite freeing as well to kind of learn to trust your instincts a bit more and you will find as well that you sometimes come up with better ideas you know in the moment than you do what you plan for i still think it's good to prepare for sure but i think you get better at rolling with the punches a bit and thinking on your feet you know and really quickly adapting so that was probably the biggest lesson for me. So sometimes it was um, coming to set an hour early and then having coming up with new ideas that could fix whatever obstacle had come up. So you learn to work within your, the time constraints. Ride the chaos. You should trademark that. That's great. <laughs> well, I think we're at time, Hope and George. So if you want to wrap us, I think we're ready. Well, thank you so much, Natalie, for talking to us today, for our woman from the future for joining us today. Um, we love this movie so much and, and um, we're super excited to see the next thing that you make. No problem. Thanks for having me, guys. Fun to chat. So thanks again to Natalie and Jason and everybody at Nightmares Film Festival. It was a kick to finally get a chance to uh, to do a podcast. That was a lot of fun. And uh, we look ahead to the next Fright Club and we're going to talk about voices. That's right. It's kind of dedicated to you, honey. Uh -huh. It's one where, because, you know, in some movies... It is the voice that does so much of the creepitude, you know, and so we wanted to just really celebrate some of those voices just, next time. Did you just invent a new word? I did. I like it. <laughs> creepitude. <laughs> so we're looking forward to that. In the meantime, let us know what you thought about this. Thought it was some great insight uh, from Natalie James. And what you thought about her movie, too. If you haven't seen Relic, please look it up. Really, really good stuff. It's one of the uh, really inexpensive rentals yes, right now, so watch yeah. it. Yeah, so watch it and let us know. You can always find us. Keep the conversation going on Twitter, at Fright Club Pod. That's us. Also on Facebook and Instagram, it's Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website, of course, you can find us, all of our written reviews and fun stuff, at madwolf.com. So until next time, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Fright Club Podcast. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. And stay frightful, my friends.